we will be dealing with here. There will be occasions where I'll be talking about like this, and some other occasions when I'll be talking like this. Yes, folks, welcome. Welcome to Left Reckon. There will be some occasions when I'm talking like this, and there will be some occasions when I'm talking like this with you, <laughs> David Christian. Hello, David. Hey, brother. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. I'm excited to uh, dig into uh, Abbott. He seems like a very interesting guy. I'd like to see somebody, uh, you know, practice emotions as their mic check. <laughs> yes. <laughs> By the way, I will talk about this later, but in the context of like a deadly storm that killed likely around 700 people, um, something else. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we got a great show for you, uh, Nick Bolin. Who uh, was he? A Patreon episode, or was he on Main Show? He was. Recall, he was on the Main Show. Yeah. He's returning uh, to tell us about some good news. Uh, we got out of Denver, Colorado, and uh, some Starbucks at the uh, at the what was it? The Barn uh, Starbucks mm-hmm. on Colfax Street, I think it is in uh, Denver. So very excited uh, to get the background of those uh, workers who decided to unanimously form a union yesterday. Hell, it's incredibly um, bright news. Very much needed. Yeah. We're going to be talking a little bit about Montana later um, and also a quick uh, update on uh, Palestine. And as always, don't forget to join us in the postgame, patreon.com slash left reckoning, where Matt and I are going to do a little bit of our segment, we told you so, uh, around Bitcoin, but then talk about some of the very, very difficult consequences that happen when you basically have um, a large scale endorsed grift that pulls in a lot of people towards the end um, and wipes their savings away. Truly devastating story. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be less of a victory lap and more of a modeling how not to be a sociopath because we all yeah. know that if Bitcoin, if the promise of Bitcoin somehow proved to bail out, uh, proved to pan out, uh, then they would be saying, uh, sorry for being poor, you folks. Mm-hmm. Um, but really what it is, is a lot of people uh, online that are really annoying and going to get washed out by this. And like, there's some degree of schadenfreude, I suppose. But a lot of other people who look to it as a speculative investment, uh, like stocks, for instance, which is how people get really ahead in this country, let's be real. Mm-hmm. And it's the new version of that's so you want to get on the ground floor, just look at Matt Damon and Spike Lee. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but re- it really is upsetting that like this, like this is going to happen. And uh, frankly, I wish, uh, I hope that we could somehow get a soft landing from something like this, but... Oh, totally, yeah. totally. Um, well, before we get into our story, too, just want to remind folks, uh, we always appreciate your call. So give us a call at 1-940-289-7234, uh, 940-289-7234. Um, leave us a voicemail. We'll play it in the post game and answer your questions and hear your stories and hang out. Uh, so be sure to do that and see you all then. Um, but yeah, should we talk about this this COVID story, this Abbott story here? Um, so we... Let's do it. Sorry, I was muted. <laughs> Um, I have a story that came out today in the brand new Sublation magazine, which y'all should definitely be checking out. They're going to be publishing a lot of really great pieces um, in the near future. It's run by a lot of different folks, uh, but folks you would know, our friend Gene Bajelon, um, and also Doug Lane, um, who has also launched uh, Sublation Books as well. Um, but they, they, Gene asked me to write this piece, and I, I figured it's worth uh, going over again on this program because it's an interesting story. Um, one, just because of the political consequences and what Abbott's doing here in Texas. Um, but two, um, because it really shows it's I don't know, it's a kind of a counter narrative, I think, to some people sort of 
on the left who I think understandably have you know worries and, and criticisms of, of state power and state overreach. Um, and we saw a lot of that in the early COVID days. I mean, you know, quite devastatingly, for example, in New York, uh, where you had Cuomo exerting a lot of personal power uh, and also hiding, you know, mass deaths in, uh, you know, nursing homes and things of that nature. Um, but a lot of times when people talk about uh, COVID, um, they, uh, they're focusing um, when they're talking about crit- making these criticisms, they're sort of focusing on low level of policy, right? Do you support mandates or you, do you not support mandates? Do you support lockdowns or do you not support lockdowns? Um, and I think at least in, in Texas that that conversation really misses the point. Um, you know, you have a lot of kind of right wing folks who moved to Texas in the past two years specifically because they like the Abbott had a kind of live and let live uh, philosophy towards uh, COVID. Um, but that philosophy is extremely limited um, when it comes to the amount of power uh, that Abbott wants to to pull to himself. So this has been happening every month since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Uh, Greg Abbott will extend a disaster declaration over the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, I know it's different everywhere else. Um, but here in Texas, I mean, you very rarely have seen a mask anywhere. Um, you know, really the only kind of relics of that that system are just sort of old paper, um, you know, posters on the outside of businesses sort of outlining uh, COVID protocols that are frankly non-existent at this point. But Abbott, um, despite the fact that he's been very much anti-mandate, um, he's been waging uh, war on, you know, local authorities, city authorities, county authorities, school systems um, over any kind of, you know, very basic COVID protocols. Um, while he's been waging those wars, sort of saying that like the time of the mandates are over, he hasn't wanted to relinquish the emergency powers that came um, with the early pandemic and has been using them quite successfully. Um, Most notably, um, he has extended the COVID-19 disaster declaration uh, to the border and to immigration. Uh, This has been over the fight of over Title 42, um, which was a Trump era policy that basically denied people their basic human rights, their basic asylum rights um, to enter the country as political, um, you know, uh, people seeking asylum. Um, Trump blocked that. And uh, the Biden administration has signaled that they are will, you know, that they're thinking about pulling that back in the near future. Um, Abbott des- uh, declared a disaster, a COVID-19 disaster declaration for the border counties, um, include actually 34 counties. So some of those counties aren't even directly on the border, um, c- citing that he's worried that immigrants are going to bring COVID-19 into Texas. Just very ironic for somebody who is, you know, not very in- worried about it being spread by anybody else except for, you know, um, immigrants uh, from the Americas. He has used this, um, the powers that he's used, uh, because if people aren't familiar with Texas politics, and I think even a lot of Texans aren't familiar with this because we've been living through a couple decades um, that have really shifted the office of the governor. Um, the governor's office in Texas is what's called a weak governor system. The people who created the Constitution in 1876 uh, were very worried, uh, rightfully or wrongfully, um, about a very strong executive, and they wanted to limit the executive power as much as possible. For a long time, governors in Texas were uh, were only elected for extremely short terms. Um, but most importantly, the powers of the governor um, were extremely limited. One, because they weren't able to set up a cabinet. And that's pretty much how most governors are able to exert their executive authority, um, in other states in the country, because they're able to basically put somebody in, you know, whatever their equivalent of a labor department is or health department or something like that. In Texas, uh, most of those boards are, 
um, they're either elected directly um, or they are appointed on a staggered basis so that no one governor would basically be able to control those the entirety of those boards. That started to change uh, when the Democratic Party completely imploded in this in this state, um, because now after, you know, years and years and years of GOP rule, most of those people who are appointed to those boards and even many of the people who are elected to them are loyal to the Republican Party. Um, Rick Perry, the former governor, really changed this into a kind of clientelist system um, where basically everybody who was um, on these state boards was extremely loyal to him. They were going to do what he um, said. And Abbott inherited that and has only deepened, um, you know, just like the amount of power and influence he has over these people. A lot of this comes uh, is about money. Um, Abbott is an incredible fundraiser. We'll give him that. He loves to schmooze and talk on the phone to boys. Um well, rich boys, at least. Um, and he rewards them uh, with positions, um, uh, you know, in, in, in his government. Um, but if that were just the story, it'd be interesting. It'd be notable uh, for people in Texas, Texas. But it is this extension of power uh, that he has gotten with this disaster declaration. The disaster declaration in Texas was set up in the 70s. Um, so that a governor in the in a you know in a situation like a hurricane or a massive flood would just be able to move resources quickly to be able to make sure that Texas and needs were being taken care of, and with and it's a very very broad um, disaster power. Um, it really allows them to override all the kind of checks and distribution of power in the state and centralize power in the governor. Again, as I said, something that was completely um, uh, you know. Uh, the, was was something that the, the the people who wrote the Constitution of Texas did never never want to see happen, um, and Abbott has now continued to extend uh, this disaster declaration um, to such an extent that now Florida and New York um, they had much shorter disaster declarations. This is the longest disaster declaration in Texas's history, and you know people remember probably a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about what he did at the border, where he basically set up a second system of checkpoints that let food rot on the on on trucks, slow down uh, production and uh, distribution of goods that are coming not just into Texas but the entire country, um, and cost you know upwards of you know a couple billion dollars um, in lost revenue and trade because of this really insane um, you know move that he was doing. And remember, I mean, like, not that we would want it to be efficient or a good inspection, but it was, it was so symbolic. Um, they weren't actually able to even investigate what was inside of truck cargo. They were only able to do basically truck safety checks. And yeah, th- there were a few trucks, um, that were found unsafe to drive. They, their headlights didn't work or their brake pads were a little worn. And, you know, maybe that was good preventing an accident or something like that. But he said he was trying to stop fentanyl, um, and, and, and human trafficking. Um, and I'll tell you all this right yeah. now, that if they found anything, you would know about it by now. They're um, smuggling fentanyl in the brake pads. And, yeah, <laughs> they found some, yeah. um, and I'm trying to like, because I, I want to talk about the National Guard in a second. I just want to make sure I'm not missing anything. People should read the piece. Um, I, I, I break down a lot of this history and how he's used his power and the kind of uh, legality around it. Sorry, Matt. I was just going to say, yeah, go go read and share uh, David's piece. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, but I, I wanted to focus specifically on this National Guard story and Operation Lone Star, um, because this is a, a very, very worrying uh, story here. So for people who aren't familiar, this is, it goes along with what I was just talking about with the kind of second checkpoint that they set up at the border. 
Um, but Abbott has deployed thousands of Texas National Guard members to the border um, to basically run a parallel operation to the federal government. And if you're already worried about what Abbott is doing inside the state of Texas, you should also be worried about a state governor, you know, going to, and trying to negotiate treaties with Mexican governors. That is not a power that state governors have to basically be able to operate as if they're their own independent country. Um, and all that you can see from what Abbott has what Abbott has learned in this period of time, these past two years, is that he can get away with this. Um, and the, the GOP is unwilling to stand up and, and to challenge, uh, challenge him on this. When the Democrats uh, were trying to run their protest against SB8 here, uh, which was the anti-abortion bill, um, you know, a bunch of Democrats fled the state of Texas to basically prevent them from being quorum for their, so that they couldn't actually pass the bill. Um, and Abbott waged war on the legislature, not just Democrats, uh, but Republicans as well, and pulled back funding for all staffers um, who work in the Texas legislature. And you got a little bit of kicking, a little bit of complaining, um, but the GOP completely acquiesced uh, to Abbott, you know, really, really running this state like a tyrant um, and, and, and ignoring the separation of powers and most importantly, ignoring uh, the intention of the system, which was to have the most power sort of held in the legislature. Uh, he's used his veto power at an extreme rate. Um, and, you know, he's using these executive orders, which, again, has never really been a big part of how you run uh, the state of Texas. For the most part, even in Abbott's early administration, most of these executive orders or orders from the governor are things like, oh, you know, let's put some funding to help a fan, you know, a group of people who are suffering after a hurricane or to say, oh, we want to have a celebration for former president George Bush uh, to honor him as a, you know, as a great Texas man, right? Like symbolic stuff. And then just kind of very, very general, unoffensive reshuffling for the most part of, uh, of funds. Um, but going back to Operation Lone Star, cause this is, this is a huge scandal here, man. Um, they have held about, you know, I think it's about 6,500, um, people, at the sorry, the, the, they've deployed about sixty five hundred people to the border. Um, Abbott is also adamant about building a border wall. He's using this executive authority that he has taken to override and um, basically just ignore the legislature to reapportion more and more and more money to the border in this failed operation to the tune of something like $4 billion. Some of that came from the legislature, um, but a lot of that came from Abbott basically reshuffling money using these executive powers that he's taken for himself. Um, but if it was just about a waste of money, um, you know, it also has to be noted too that this whole thing, if you think about $4 billion with very little oversight, has just been a cash cow for private contractors with little to no oversight. Um, you know, If it was just about you know the way that they're spending money, it would be a scandal. Um, but it gets much, much, much worse um, because the people who are being called up to the border, these Texas National Guardsmen, are working under absolutely brutal conditions. You have to remember that there's a big difference between being called up for a federal um, mission if you're in if you're in the National Guard versus a state mission. Most importantly, um, pay is less. You don't have access to the federal healthcare system, and if you die. If you die, if you're killed in action, you get workers' comp. Your family gets workers' comp after you pass, and you have to go through all of these kind of bureaucratic loophole, you know, um, you know, bureaucratic processes to even get it. And a lot of those people end up failing um, to collect their paperwork and turn their paperwork in a, in a way um, that's accessible to the state, and they either don't get it paid out or it gets delayed significantly. Um, versus if you if you're killed in action at, on a federal mission, your family gets a hundred thousand dollars immediately. You know, that's it. Done. 
Um, and this matters um, because, you know, just earlier um, in, in April, uh, a Texas National Guardsman drowned, uh, Bishop Evans, drowned while jumping into the Rio Grande to save a migrant family. Um, who was trying to cross uh, the river. The most basic human thing, you're seeing somebody suffer and you want to help out them. You want to help them out. Um, you know, and he's not alone. Um, you know, just, you know, warning, I'll talk, I'm talk about suicides in a second. Um, but, you know, there has been a real uptick of National Guardsmen who have been committing suicide because you have to remember that these are people who have civilian jobs on the top of this. You pull them away for months on end on a mission that most of them recognize is useless and is symbolic and they're being used as political tools by the governor. Um, they're losing their jobs, they're losing their income, and they're worried about what's going to happen to their family and their life when they come back from the service. Um, it's it's very, very bleak. And we'll look at some of the examples in, in just one second. Um, but I also wanted to note, they're, they're giving, this this mission has, you know, been a huge boon to private contractors has been a huge waste of taxpayer money in the state of texas and um it doesn't seem like it's being run on any kind of like drop the politics drop the morality anything like this just basic how you run an operation of this scale it is a mess uh, when bishop evans drowned there was a big investigation as to how this could happen um and, and the leaders of the operation were asked is there a protocol for guardsmen when it comes to entering uh, the water in this kind of situation? They said, no. Um, are guardsmen given flotation devices, right? Which you think would be a very, very basic, um, you know, kind of protocol. No. When we're talking about the Texas border, we're talking about a river. <laughs> we're talking about a big river. And there's no protocol about whether or not you should be coming into the water, getting safety equipment for people. I mean, it's a huge scandal. And now... Um, instead of doing those kind of basic things, National Guardsmen have been told that if they see somebody drowning, to watch them drown and to not come and save them. Absolutely inhuman and disgusting, um, you know, kind of kind of leadership there. But, you know, let, let's talk about this because um, there's an exciting development on, on this piece, too, um, when it does come to the National Guard. Um, let me just read, a, just to paint the picture a little bit more. Um, this is from my piece. This is an interview that was done by Army Times uh, with different National Guards members. I'm wasting time watching the grass grow at my observation point along the border while my civilian job is dying on the vine. Um, if we could pull up this uh, Army Times piece, Matt, uh, there's, a, there's a few other things that are worth noting. Um, in, in this kind of, they went, Army Times went and they interviewed a bunch of guardsmen, as many as one in five troops in the 6,500 strong operational force um, who have been sent to the border have reported problems with their pay, which also remember is less than they would be getting if they're getting a federal mission. Um, two, including being paid late, too little or not at all for months. I mean, imagine that you have a family to take care of and you're just getting no income. You're losing right. your well civilian job. It needs to be stressed. Like, that's why they've joined this thing in the fucking first place. This isn't, I mean, out of the yeah. most part, patriotism, yeah, yeah. like serving their country, which is what the right will want to present this as, right? This is about people not having enough to, like, support a family, joining up to become a National Guards person, and then being used as a political pawn like this. Like, and it's it, this comes up, like, when, it, when we talk about benefits and stuff, like, well, how are we going, if we just extend healthcare and, uh, pay to all these people. How are we going to get recruits to the military and to national mm -hmm. guards? Like that's why is they like that. Pe and so like 
the the double impact you're saying is like I can't imagine being in that fucking position that you, like this is not what you signed up for where it's actually putting you behind and they're not even fucking paying you totally and the conditions are horrible um noted here many are living in cramped trailers with dozens of troops i mean imagine being on assignment like that and then also like having the the realization too that there's no reason for you to be there in the first place again even by the standards that the right wants uh, this has not been a successful operation uh when it comes to you know stopping drug trafficking things of that nature um some say they feel underutilized and rarely even see migrants while working uh, in isolated observation posts that in some cases lack portable toilets for months. Um, service members have struggled with shortages of critical equipment, including cold weather gear, medical equipment, and plates for their ballistic vests. If you want to pull up this next story here, um, because they're not just accepting it. And this is actually, it's a pretty interesting precedent here. And we'll, we'll be following this as it continues to develop. Um, but te- this is in Jacobin. It's been reported elsewhere as well. Uh, Texas soldiers are unionizing after facing attacks by a right-wing governor. The people um, in the National Guard uh, who are, again, facing these horrific conditions, just abused by the governor, abused by the system, are being underpaid. And also remember that oftentimes these guys are doing missions because Biden has also um, mobilized. There is a federal mission, too, that's mobilized National Guard troops to the border as well. Um, so oftentimes they're working next to somebody who has the benefits and the pay and the protections that they're not getting um, because they were called up by Greg Abbott. Um, but these soldiers are now actively unionizing. Now, for people who aren't familiar um, the, in the United States, because in the Vietnam War, there was a lot of organizing among soldiers um, to actually create a kind of proto-union force that was going to be able to push back against the abuse that they were facing and push back um, against the barbaric war in Vietnam. Uh, the United States government effectively outlawed uh, any kind of labor organization or, or and made it illegal to be a member of a, of a la- labor organization if you're in the military. Um, but earlier this year, the just uh, the Justice Department um, released um, a, a document saying that National Guardsmen who are pulled up by their governor on a state mission are allowed to join um, the state employees union. Um, so this is a very, very new thing. Uh, this is not something that's been along uh, around for a while and people are taking advantage of, of this moment here in Texas and are trying to organize national guardsmen, the 6,500, um, member force here into, um, a union so that they can get the kind of basic protections that they need so that they can get, um, helped out. They have an uphill fight because remember, um, you know, if you're on deployment, um, they control every aspect of your life. Think about the shit that they're doing to people at Starbucks. Imagine if you live there, right? Um, you know, it's it's an uphill fight, but it's a very encouraging one, uh, I must say. I was shocked to even find that this was uh, allowable, that <laughs> even for domestic stuff. That, but I think what it's amazing is like, and the optimistic takeaway is that this shows a rising consciousness for the power of collective bargaining and forming unions because like we're seeing it everywhere now right you see it at amazon starbucks mm-hmm. um starbucks a place that, like uh, traditionally wasn't thought of as a as this hospitable ground and now uh, national guards folks and that's not because i mean that's not because of the squad it's not because of media mm-hmm. it's because of situ- the, the conditions and uh, i mean it's it's heartening to see so many people f- like go down this route and i mean i think it's just like our responsibility to keep this going the best as best we can totally and i i think it's it's very exciting and i think um it would also be good 
you know, politically too, to have a, you know, the soldiers themselves challenging Abbott um, on all of this. Uh, maybe just, just to end, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, Matt. I mean, the reason I've been interested in this story um, as it's sort of been developing, and I've been interested in, I've sort of following this for a while now, um, is that I, I think that a lot of, as I said at the top, like a lot of the criticisms of kind of COVID era um, policy from the government, um, you know, who were saying, oh, the government's overstepping its its reach. They're sort of asserting powers for themselves. We're so hyper-focused on um, the policies themselves, right? And I think oftentimes more reflected how you felt about, uh, you know, wearing a mask or not. Um, then, uh, you know, then the actual question of whether or not this is good for democracy, because here in Texas, they don't have the mandates, uh, but we have seen an unprecedented centralization of, of power that is quite dangerous. It's having consequences. Um, and it doesn't seem like there is any, um, you know, motivation on Abbott's part uh, to to limit this. And as long as the GOP um, is in control of the legislature, there is very little check on this. Um, it's very much under the radar kind of stuff, which is how Abbott operates, you know, Um it's, it's worth noting, just if people aren't familiar with this, you know, Greg Abbott is in a wheelchair uh, because when he was younger, uh, he was hit by a tree that fell when he was out for a jaw. Um, and Abbott um, sued the tree company that worked on the tree and the homeowner. Um, and I think got somewhere near, whew, I have it in here, $11 million or something like that. Um, $11 million at the end of his... Uh, um, at the end of his settlement, which I think is going to be paid out. Yeah, $11 million, uh, which will be paid out... Uh, at the end of this year, um, in full. And then when he got onto the Supreme court and then when he was an attorney general, Abbott ca- campaigned ferociously to limit non-medical expenses, um, from, uh, you know, from, from any kind of, you know, personal, um, injury lawsuit, uh, where it is now capped at just $250,000. So this is somebody who benefited from a system that allowed him to collect millions of dollars and is now blocking other people today from being able to sue and get those kind of damages for themselves. Right. He's somebody who like very much floats, uh, whichever way the wind goes. When Bush was in power, he was a Bush style Republican. Trump's in power. He's now a, a Trumpy guy. Um, He's devastating the state uh, with his uh, um, with with his just love affair with these kind of private this this super privatized grid. They have done very very little to weatherize or protect Texans um, from the failure that ended up killing you know seven hundred people. Um, and he sees a golden opportunity here. He has a, he. I'll give him this right. He's got a very sharp legal mind, and he understands how to play this game well. That's how he rose to power in Texas politics, because he was somebody who could get things done. What motivates him is a bit of a question. Um, I would argue that it's money. Uh, This is somebody who always follows the campaign contributions. And in a system like Texas's, in a system that Abbott runs, he rewards these guys um, in a big way. Um, he got $4.6 million in donations after the winter storm happened from the very companies who he should have been, you know, coming at and regulating and forcing to weatherize, uh, the grid. Um, and the, the point here is about, you know, the COVID-19 powers that governors and mayors and, you know, even the federal government enjoyed. Um, you know, I think that it's a hundred percent an accurate question to say there needs to be challenges, um, and abilities to call back these emergency powers because we're seeing here, I mean, there is no real, um, horizon, uh, to Abbott's emergency powers. And I think he's going to continue to use this, um, as long, um, as, as it's viable for him, which could be a very, very long time. Um, 
Right, certainly longer than uh, Democrats are willing to use emergency powers for anything like you know getting people to stay at home or something like that. Which is you see how this stuff sticks is is to put the screws to workers um, generally. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, my general take is just a frustration with there's what's the imperative of the ruling class in, during the COVID era? It's get people's ass back to work. Right. Yep. That's what the National Restaurant Association is interested in. That's what all these lobbying organizations that run Congress are interested in. And But like you can't just say that because mm-hmm. John Taffer tried to just say that and he had to issue an apology <laughs> later, yeah. right? And and so you have to find these other ways to say it. And liber- this libertarian uh, concern, which I agree, like theoretically it could be uh, um, – like there are things – like this Title 42 is uh, uh, concerning. I also am not uh, – I, it makes me sick to my stomach to think about all the people that lost jobs because they were afraid of a, a vaccine that uh, our media like couldn't message clearly about and they mm-hmm. might have got misled or whatever. Like, But fundamentally, you have to look at this thing from the worker's perspective, which is like, well, that makes me sick. It makes me sicker that people are forced into a pandemic to go work for work in, a, in conditions that aren't safe. And are, and frankly, both parties have incentives to downplay this, um, like the the like the severity of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's like I agree. Like I I wish we did have room for the conversation, uh, or like I, I theoretically I, I like the conversation of like let's be uh, uh, let's uh, like there's a lot of people that think we had that conversation and we never had it. No, we right? the one you're yeah. talking about, right? We had this instead one where it's like, oh, what if we have to we're forced to wear masks forever and the government mm-hmm. is coming around every four months and injecting us with the uh, you know um, Democrat voter serum and like. And, and, and we didn't have the one, which is the fundamental one, which is like, uh, where do the business owners want to take society <laughs> and where yeah. are they taking this? And, and like, it's just worth noting too, like to your point, Matt, like, you know, it's it just like, for me, like uh, the reason I, I want to write this piece and I've been focusing on is because again, people are always like, well, Abbott's not doing anything. It's like, that's just not the case. Right. So Abbott um, was, you know, as you were saying, like, what did, what did the capitalist class want when the COVID-19, you know, pandemic started? They want everybody to get back to work. Um, you know, not all capitalists, but, um, you know, some of them were sort of happy with, uh, you know, this kind of isolated situation. Um, but a lot of them did want, especially their low wage workers to be forced to come back, um, and do the kind of necessary services that keep society running. Um, so what is it, what happens? Abbott gets incredible amount of campaign contributions from these guys. And then he uses the emergency powers that came with the disaster declaration to override city level, um, mandates. Right. So he used he was the one who was bought, who ended up having the power to basically be able to override all other government authority. And I'd also argue, uh, you know, not to be starry eyed about local government, but local government is at least closer and arguably a little bit more reflective for most people than state government, at least here. Right. Because you have cities like Austin and Houston and Dallas, um, which are run by very different people than Abbott and his gang. So he finds a way to basically be able to override all of the small government in Texas, um, you know, for the benefit of, uh, you know, these folks using uh, COVID-19 disaster declaration as the way to go. Um, But before we leave, uh, we sort of skipped over the uh, um, the winter storm here. I think we have to play this clip one more time because, you know, if you're not familiar with uh, Abbott, he is not a very skilled order. Um, he's a great fundraiser. Um, he's good at coming up with ways to waste resources and put people's lives at risk. But speaking is not one of his strong suits. And this is a hot mic. Uh, we clip. will be dealing with here. There will be occasions. 
this this is a hot mic clip from the winter storm uh which you know again killed between you know estimates are between like 400 and 900 people died froze to death um after this texans were many texans were faced with you know Power bills, and if their power didn't go off, we're faced with power bills, $16,000, $17,000, right? A huge, huge crisis. I mean, talking to family and friends, um, you know, you, you will just hear just devastating stories of, of the suffering that people are going through and also, you know, some very beautiful and inspiring stories of people coming together, opening up their house to each other um, and, and, and things like that. But anyways, here's Abbott at a state crisis coming to speak to the state of Texas um, and here's him practicing some very, very basic human emotion. We will be dealing with here. There will be occasions where I'll be talking about like this. And some other occasions when I'll be talking <laughs> like this. Oh, that's beautiful. Is that good enough? <laughs> it is that. <laughs> um <sighs> So there'll be more in the future. I mean, we'll definitely be watching this National Guard story because I think this is a huge scandal. And um, I think Abbott, need, Abbott and his boys need to be hit on this a hell of a lot more than they are. Um, it's absolutely devastating. I'm kind of a surprise that like the like sort of mainstream Democratic uh, media hasn't flagged this as a, like usually they like to love to rally around the flag. And these are troops. Um, I mean, I, I'm kind of, you know, a little bit confused. I mean, they, you know, in, in fairness, like in the sense of like, have people said stuff? I mean, Beto talks about this. Okay. But none of it, none of it has bubbled up, really. I mean, you know, um, and I think that that's a kind of legitimacy crisis and a trust crisis for people like Beto with most people. Um, but I totally agree, Matt. Like, I think they should be getting hit a hell of a lot more than they are. Um, I think, you know, sometimes with these things, they try it once and if it doesn't land immediately, they give up. Uh, Which I mean, is left reckoning. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, you just look at the way Republicans just repeat sh- the dumbest shit until it becomes like a minor movement. Like, totally. like you have true things that you can run on, and like, uh, like it's like, oh shit, pro union. Like we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be that now. I mean, the fucking like we're, we're co- the bureaucracy is more fucking pro union than the Democrats are at this point. Well, y'all, um, we got. Uh, a really exciting talking about union stuff. Uh, we got a really exciting conversation coming up for y'all with Nick Bolin, uh, who is an absolute uh, must read and must follow. He has a piece in the guardian. You can find the link in the show notes to it um, about the trials and struggles that these people in Denver had in this union campaign. He wrote it before um, the final tally was in. Um, so, uh, you know, this was recorded uh, on Monday, but yesterday, and let me share this with y'all. Uh, yesterday afternoon, uh, we got the results. Um, I guess we got two, but uh, uh, we got the results here uh, that the group in the Denver Starbucks voted unanimously uh, to form a union with Starbucks Workers United. Uh, here's the photograph of those uh, those brave folks celebrating. Um, it's a hell of a story. Um, Nick really paints uh, a very compelling picture as to the, the struggles that these folks were facing. And we also talk a little bit about Colorado's uh, hidden labor history. Uh, so I hope you all enjoy and we'll see you all on the other side. We've got a few more segments after that, too. And yeah, here we are, folks. See you in about 45 minutes. Welcome back, uh, Left Reckoners. David here, joined as always by our good friend Matt Leck. Hello there. 
And uh, we're joined again um, by a return guest, Nick Boland, who is a reporter uh, with High Country News. You should definitely check out um, the interview we did with him just a few weeks ago about why Democrats are losing rural America. Um, but we wanted to bring him on today to talk about something very specific uh, to Colorado that is also touching on this big national story. Um, and that is this Starbucks union campaign. Um, he has a great piece that y'all should check out um, in The Guardian called Pure Propaganda Inside Starbucks Anti-Union Tactics. Um, and we're really thrilled to have him on to sort of break down this piece. Thank you so much, Nick, for hanging out with us this afternoon. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Well, totally, man. Well, let's just jump um, right into it. We're going to talk a little bit, bit about Starbucks and then towards the end. We're actually going to hear a little bit about uh, Colorado and the area's uh, labor history, which will be really interesting. Um, but before we get there, um, you know, we're talking about a campaign in Denver. And for people who might not be familiar um, with what's been going on on the ground, particularly for like working people, you know, what's the kind of state of play right now for the average person in uh, Denver, Colorado? So, yeah, in Denver over the past decade or so, uh, cost of living has just skyrocketed um, with most of that increase based uh, with housing costs. Um, and, you know, there, there's been... Denver's economy is really driven by these kind of like big, fast moving economic forces like aerospace and tech and finance. Um, but you know, for the, for the sort of person who makes most of their income or all of their income from Starbucks, um, you know, it's just really hard to live in Denver these days. And, you know, this is the, this is kind of the context in which, in which my story took place is that, you know, these workers who, um, who've worked at Starbucks for years. And, you know, in some cases when they began, you know, it, they, they could live fairly comfortably. Um, they can't anymore. And that this was, you know, an impetus for them to, uh, uh, think about unionizing when, when the kind of nationwide Starbucks union push began back in December. Yeah. And I mean, uh, this is something, this is like why this story is both particular and sort of universal at this point, where like so many people who work for a wage are really struggling to be able to continue to, you know, support themselves while also providing very, very necessary services, um, for, for their community. Um, this, this location is pretty interesting and, uh, um, it's a pretty interesting location. They call it the barn, if I if I recall correctly. It's That's a really right. fascinating building. We'll, when Matt comes back on, we'll uh, we'll put up an image of it. Um, but could you talk a little bit um, too? In addition to you know the housing crisis, you know what were some of the conditions, particular to this Starbucks in, in particular, um, that sort of were encouraging people to unionize, and what was really behind the drive for this union campaign? Sure. So the barn, um, and yeah, when you pull it up, it really does look like a barn. It's on, um, you know, if you know Denver, you know, it, it, it's one of kind of the more famous main drags in Denver. It's called Colfax Avenue, and it's got a lot of the kind of iconic Denver restaurants and music venues, old theaters, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, the, the workers there say that and this, this is a thing for Starbucks baristas, you know, there, there tend to be a lot of Starbucks in, in, you know, close proximity to one another. And it's common for workers at one location to share shifts at others mm. if, if people need help. Um, but the barn's kind of notorious in Denver because, you know, the pace is really fast. Um, the, 
it kind of has a reputation which which the workers describe to me as not really necessarily earned, like overblown a little bit as, you know, this kind of like rough and tumble Starbucks. So like a lot of the like the suburban locations uh, Starbucks look like the baristas from there tend to not really pick up shifts at the barn. But one of the things that this does is it creates like a very tight knit group mm. of employees. Um, and you know, they do have to deal with a lot of stuff. Um, you know, I think this is pretty universal across the service industry, but people have been pretty nasty during, you know, the pandemic times. Um, one of the, the guys I interviewed for the story was punched by a customer, um, because of a, you know, mask mandate, uh, thing. And, um, another, uh, one of the kind of main characters in my story, um, she was pepper sprayed in the face in the drive-thru window um, by a customer who was mad that they were out of Frappuccinos. Um, (laughs) Sounded like I talked to her and, you know, they, they sounded like the follow-up. There was perhaps some sort of mental health crisis going on there. But um, yeah, I mean, she, they, they've really been through it and, and, you know, um, they say that, you know, by and large, the Starbucks management, um, they haven't been helpful or receptive con- to concerns about safety. Um, and so again, you know, the, this, the, you know, the first Starbucks to unionize was in Buffalo in, in December. And when that happened, I mean, they said there was just this kind of outpouring of, um, you know, in the staff group chat, just like, what could a union do for us? Like would be able to bargain for some of these protections that, you know, or, or workplace safety stuff, um, the management wouldn't give us or increased wages, um, which, you know, have, have stagnated in recent years and have gone towards corporate profits rather than towards mm-hmm. the baristas. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the tight knit nature of the barn um, really contributed to them announcing a union drive pretty early um, because there were a lot of them who were supportive of the union and others who weren't, but were able to kind of like be brought along by their coworkers. Um, So yeah, they, they announced in January, um, which it took a very long time for the NLRB to give them a vote, but they announced very early on. And I, Mm. I think some of that has to be chalked up to the kind of specifics of that workplace. Yeah, I mean, it's it just is. I just wanted to note really quick that, like, in like the complete defunding of like public space that we're seeing in cities, it's like Starbucks's and like those kind of places end up being very important for the community. And these people are having to do you know multiple roles at once, like one providing a service and and coffee, and also maintaining an environment um, for people of many different walks of life, people who have different needs, et cetera. Um, and one of the things that was like notable, I think in your piece, and you've, you've touched on it um, already, but like, is that, you know, there's a demand, obviously, like we want better pay. We want better um, security for our, ourselves. We want better benefits, all that kind of stuff. But there's also these, you know, secondary, they're not secondary, but like they're, they're attached to it demands. Like, you know, we need the company to also be showing up and supporting us and supporting the workers. If we're going to be doing this kind of, you know, work that is sort of necessary for maintaining our jobs right now. Absolutely. And, you know, Starbucks has been around for decades now. There are, I think, 9,000 stores in the U.S. Um, And, you know, it's been a target, or at least maybe not even a target, but union organizers have been interested in, in making inroads there for years and years. And one of the reasons they haven't been able to is because Starbucks tended to have pretty good benefits and, Mm -hmm. 
and pay pretty well. Um, I think, you know, one of the reasons why you're now, in addition to some other things like pay hasn't really kept up, you know, it used to be better than it is relative to inflation. Um, that the the um, the pandemic and the the working conditions and the fact that you know people who serve coffee had to go to work every day while others you know got to work from home. I think that really did kind of broaden the the mm-hmm. possibilities for labor organizing and start accelerated them maybe in a way that um, you know kind of yeah. I mean, six months ago there were zero Starbucks unionized in mm-hmm. the U.S. and now I think there are more than sixty successful campaigns and like almost 300 ongoing. Um, and I, I mean the, the, the just awful conditions that they had to endure during, during the pandemic, um, I think really contributed to that. And the pepper spray incident that this part like captures so much of what's going wrong in America. So you have this mental health crisis, which underpaid workers are on the front lines of dealing with at all these major corporations. It's not these union busting management that has to deal with any people mm-hmm. that either hate masks or have some other crisis that's not being addressed. And like you say, like um, what's it's so brave about what these people are doing is they do rely on those health benefits because we don't have those universalized throughout the country, which is partially why you have this crisis <laughs> everywhere that exactly. these workers have to deal with. It's, it's such like a, a like a, 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 it's, it's a mess. No, it really is. And, um, you know, this was one of the things that, you know, the, the Starbucks workers were one of the things I, I, one of the quotes that stood out to me, it's in the story. Um, you know, one of the workers said, yeah, like Starbucks was one of the first American companies to give some manner of health benefits to part-time workers. It's like, that's, that's a really good thing. That's why people seek out Starbucks often and have historically. Um, but she said to me, like the company doesn't get to, like, if you give us some benefits, you don't get to tell us like that's a no. Mm-hmm. Um, but the company is trying to do that. And she said, okay, well, like then we're going to form a union and, and push for some more. Um, because yeah, I mean the, the, uh, you know, like you said, it, it, they 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 can't really live in Denver um, on the on a Starbucks on a Starbucks salary as it stands right now, or it's really really hard to. Um, and you know, they're saying, yeah, I mean, we're grateful that Starbucks has you know better benefits than maybe some other large corporations. Um, but rather than them being kind of like benevolently granted to us from on high, like. We want to create a union and go bargain for our own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like these major corporations and like Amazon makes a show of like, look, we support the fight for 15 guys. Like all these corporations, these major retailers, these major corporations that employ a lot of people under uh, under a living wage, they could tomorrow make the make the make Congress uh, uh, extend those rights to people, extend healthcare to folks and, and this, that, and the other. And they don't because they like it as a cudgel to that. They can just give it uh, to dispense whatever workers aren't going to frankly unionize, uh, and are going to put exactly. up with being under understaffed all the time. And that are going to put up with mm. that. You get a little bit of healthcare, nobody else. Well, and this has been, I mean, just d- displayed, you know, to, to a somewhat shocking extent in the past couple of weeks, because um, I'm sure you guys saw this, but uh, Howard Schultz announced this like pretty robust benefit expansion to Starbucks employees. It was going to be an immediate pay raise mm-hmm. um, within a greater pay raise coming in the fall, 
you know, tiered to experience level. Um, this is kind of shocking to me um, that they don't have credit card tipping at Starbucks. Hmm. Um, you weird. can tip in the app and you can tip cash, but people don't carry cash anymore and no one uses the app. Um, but they're going to implement credit card tipping, which is going to really increase their, their wages this fall. Um, there was other stuff about like some financial service help and other, you know, health benefits, but Schultz said he's only, they only want to expand it for non union stores mm. employees, um, you know, in this, in this attempt to pit unionized against non-unionized employees. Um, and you know, probably rightfully so the union is, is taking full credit for this. Like you wouldn't have done this out of the goodwill of your heart. You're only doing this because this wildly successful union campaign has blindsided you all. And now you're, you know, desperately trying to put a roadblock in the way. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, one, I, there, there's a question of legality that that might uh, violate good faith bargaining laws mm -hmm. um, and discrimination laws that you can't, uh, uh, expand benefits, uh, to only a few of your employees, but then, yeah, there's the issue of, um, they could have done this all along. They only did it when, when there's this wildfire reunion campaign that's sweeping the nation. Yeah. And also like, you know, a lot of things can be illegal, but as we've learned time and time again, these big corporations, they have the ability to sit and wait out, uh, challenges and, you know, they're sort of banking on that to, you know, to, to try to bust unions in, in the meantime. I mean, you know, in addition to that, um, you know, Starbucks corporate culture has, you know, their whole kind of very progressive veneer. They call everybody a partner. Um, mm -hmm. but they're not partners enough to make their own decisions about whether they want to be in a union or not. Uh, the company is now trying to pit union versus non, uh, union workers again against each other. Um, and also in your story, you note that this location has seen a lot of attention, uh, from like Starbucks, uh, figures. Um, mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit about, you know, who's coming down there and what they're saying to the workers there? Sure. So shortly after, you know, they announced, uh, their, your union, um, push in late January. Um, you know, the workers there say it was pretty immediate. And I, I was talking to him pretty early on that figures from kind of the corporate or even, you know, kind of regional, mm. um, Starbucks hierarchy began appearing in the store in a way that, you know, they never had before. Um, sometimes just kind of sitting there and watching and taking notes, other times nitpicking them about stuff like name tags or very minor uniform stuff that, you know, they said had never been an issue in the past. Um, over the span of a couple days in February, every worker in that store had to do a one-on-one -on -one or two-on-one -on -one meeting with some of these corporate figures where they were kind of grilled about what they knew about the union, whether they supported the union, um, and there were kind of vague insinuations made about benefits. So, you know, they can never say this would violate the law. Mm -hmm. You're going to lose your benefits if you unionize. What they can say is, we can't promise you that your benefits won't get worse, um, which is what, you know, many employees I interviewed at that store said they were told. Um, and then, yeah, there were, you know, things got worse. One of the, my story begins with this anecdote for one of the, um, one of the more experienced employees who was definitely a union advocate who was grilled by this corporate investigator about taking food home at the end of shifts. And to be clear, this isn't like stealing food. This is like taking expired fruit or mm -hmm. expired granola bars that would either be like, 
they put it in this box that sometimes goes to local food pantries, but the box doesn't always get picked up. So he's like, if I see an apple in the box that's turning brown, like either throw it away or take it home. Or like, you know, they throw away a box of granola bars that's expired. And, you know, you grab mm-hmm. some. And, you know, he said before the union thing, my manager, the district manager, everyone knows we do this. It's maybe not like condoned, but it's never been a problem in the years he worked at Starbucks. And um, yeah, this, he had to endure this call, which I got an audio recording of, of him just grilling him about, about taking food home Um, him. So he quit that day, um, but he suspected it was going to justify him being pre-fired. There's this Mm kind of thing where you can, you're kind of one step from being fired and several of the leading union organizers were written up after never having been disciplined in any way. And there's this gradation of punishments. So they got the most severe punishment before being fired for, you know, violations that they said were either minor or fabricated. Um, Several of the leading union organizers did. Uh, One of them was eventually fired. Um, uh, Several other employees were um, said that they like um, just abruptly had an issue getting enough hours, which seems Mm. kind of ridiculous, right? It's like, it seems like every business in America is short staffed right now, but they would like people who were expecting like 30, 40 hours a week at Starbucks suddenly find themselves like struggling to get like 25, 28. Um, and like I said, I mean, Denver's expensive and suddenly they'd find themselves behind on rent. Um, and the, their, the, the workers speculation was this is one attempt to demoralize them and get them to quit so that they could hire new employees and potentially shift the union vote. Um, and then two, you know, they were kind of hoping if, you know, you short staff, really busy store, they'll kind of be, you know, resentment among the staff because, mm-hmm. you know, stuff's going poorly. Drinks are being, you know, mismanaged or orders are going unfilled and people are kind of stopped sniping at each other if everyone hates each other. Uh, I don't think that happened, but that was their their guess for why for the, why those tactics. So, yeah, I mean, the ones who are still there and a a bunch, a few people quit, I think we're up to eight have either been quit or fired since this whole Mm -hmm. thing began. Um, you know, they say it's pretty miserable working there now, um, in a way that it was not before the union campaign. Um, but you know, for a lot of them, this is their main source of income. And even if they're looking for other jobs, they, they have to show up to work every day. And like, this is like the national playbook for Starbucks at, at this point. Like this is, they, they did this in Arizona. They, they did this in Memphis where they were coming in, you know, and it, it was an impossible situation to figure out what Starbucks was going to get mad at you for. They're getting mad at employees for showing up early <laughs> to their shift. They were getting mad at employees for staying late. Um, you know, and it always seemed to happen, um, that the people who were just getting these kind of strange violations that were atypical were people who are heavily involved in, uh, yeah. you know, in the, in the unionizing. I will say that the Denver Starbucks definitely put themselves, um, I think put a target on their collective backs because they did a six hour strike and walk mm. out before they formed a union, which is, you know, I think pretty- that's brave. Yeah, it's brave. Uh, it was March 11th. Um, they, you know, walked in, said, you know, under our NLRB rights, National Labor Relations Act, right? It's NLRA rights. Like we are walking out. We will be back at 1 p.m. Um, 
and uh, they they kind of demonstrated in front of the store, and this led to months of back and forth about Starbucks claiming about all this like violence and hitting cars with their picket signs and stuff from the workers. Um, it was part of a, a complaint filed to the NLRB by Starbucks against the Denver store and against the, the Starbucks uh, union, the national union. Um, and, you know, the workers say like, yeah, we booed some cars who broke the picket line to go to the drive through, but like we weren't violent. Um, and I, I wasn't actually able to drive over for that, but the guardian had a photographer there and, you know, I called him at when all this came and I was like, you know, you were there for hours. Like, did you see any of this stuff? And he's like, no, they just like chanted and booed some cars and, you know, some people yelled at him and, then it was over. Yeah. So, um, it, it is a bit of a, he, sh he said, she said, but you know, the workers say it's just completely fabricated. Um, yeah. was their description of, of the, the claims from Starbucks about what happened that day. And there's been a few of that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sorry about that. Well, I was going to say, I think we heard similar thing was the John Deere strike where it, oh, yeah. they're always yes. looking for an excuse to limit like um, picket sizes and stuff like that. And they'll like any old shit. They'll make Alabama. Like, same uh, thing. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they cut them down to like one person allowed to be on the picket line because of complete bogus stuff. They're not yeah. to sidetrack, but like complete bogus stuff there, including the fact that it was like the union workers themselves who were getting run over and plowed into by pickup trucks, right. uh, not the union organizers causing any trouble. Um, but they're like, so like Starbucks has filed their complaint, but the, uh, the, the workers too have filed with the NLRB, right? Many times. Yeah. So by my count, there are at least four and I think there's a couple more coming. They're called ULPs, unfair labor practice complaints that you file with the NLRB, um, from this store alone. Uh, and late last week it, it, it was announced that the NLRB is, in, is investigating over 200, uh, instances of unfair um, labor practices, mostly based around some of those early campaigns in Buffalo. Um, and my sense of it, is, I mean, if you go on the, the NLRB website, you can look at them and it's just like several per day from Starbucks workers directed at the company. I mean, they're just pouring in from all over the country and the NLRB has been underfunded by both administrations mm -hmm. for decades. I just don't think they have the capacity to investigate all of these. Um, but, you know, they have announced this huge, um, uh, I mean, 200 is a lot, which is pretty, pretty yeah. huge investigation of Starbucks. Um, and that followed on the heels of a lawsuit over, I think it was like 19 instances of the Starbucks employee handbook that violated various aspects of federal labor law. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean they are they are uh, I, I mean they've been seemingly violating anti you know uh, labor laws right and left um, and the consequences are starting to come but you know it's it's not it's not clear what exactly this is going to do to prevent Starbucks from treating its employees this way in the short what? term. Let's not forget, y'all, um, you know, just going back to a conversation we had with you the last time you were on, that uh, Hillary Clinton was very seriously considering Howard Schultz to be labor secretary. Uh <laughs> you know, I saw that on yeah. Twitter the other day, and I, I kind of was like, that's got to be an Onion headline, right? Like, I didn't remember that from the <laughs> campaign, but <Yeah. laughs> it turns out to be true. It's pretty dark stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That is nuts. I, I, I just want to make one point about those nitpicky uh, sort of rules. And you see this a mm -hmm. lot in uh, those – you know, there's like a 
there's a, a sort of public justification for that sort of stuff. Like it's sort of like the uh, broken windows policing. Like you take care of the small things and the big things will fall into place. Well, the dark side of both this and the broken windows policing thing is like actually when it comes time for the authorities to get people out of there that they don't want there because they're being a problem uh, for one re- reason or another, it gets reason for them to fire them like or, or you know jail them in the case of the broken windows policing. So um, and, and understanding that is like this is why this is why they decide all of a sudden to start talking about name tags or tucking Mm -hmm. in your shirts or that stuff it's because it's time for management to flex its muscle a little bit right so that that thing i told you about with the taking food home um you know the guy you know like i said he there there's an audio recording of that interaction that we were able to get our hands on um and it was um he, he gets really mad and he says to the Starbucks investigator, like, there's a member of staff here who's homeless. Um, and he's like, you're like, it's going to the food pantry. Like this box is going to the food pantry. Like we literally have a staffer here who, who doesn't have a home. Um, and rather than, you know, kind of engaging with that, the, the Starbucks investigator starts demanding the name of the employee oh, who's homeless, which the barista who I interviewed does not provide. Um, but yeah, I mean, just you know, these 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 tiny infractions that um, yeah, yeah. The, the focus was on the tiny infractions rather than the fact that with a Starbucks salary, one of their employees couldn't can't didn't live. have a place to live yeah. in, in this city. Yeah, Un- unbelievable. Well, um, well, actually, well, before we go um, to um, some. I just want to ask just really quick, um, has there been much in the way of community support um, in this? We've seen different levels in different parts mm-hmm. of the country, so I'm just curious. Yeah, so the day of the strike, um, there were some uh, other local unions that turned out um, and stood on the picket line. Um, you know, it seemed like a mixed bag that day. So there was some community support. I know the Denver DSA has been coming by and, um, you know, kind of – making sure to buy coffee and tip well. And I think they showed Mm -hmm. up the day of the strike too. Um, I know that also the day of the strike, you know, there were some people who yelled at them and crossed the picket line and someone threw an egg at them from a nearby. Jesus Christ. Um, uh, And then, yeah, I I know that um, a few, you know, just, just kind of bait. And this has been happening around the country, you know, people come in Mm -hmm. and say, Hey, we hear you're unionizing and, you know, be, put their order name as like pro union or something on the app, mm-hmm. like little stuff like that, you know, that has been happening. Um, I know that one of the, um, one of the baristas I talked to, she said that she had um, some friends in the Denver teachers union and that um, the, the teachers union um, turned out the day of the strike. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, um, I don't think it's been, like an outpouring of either way of like positive or negative, but I've definitely heard some kind of nice little anecdotes of, of support. Well, I, yeah. I want, I'm oh, sorry. Well, I, I want to kind of jump in there cause you have a little bit on the sort of uh, wild west uh, and sort of versus the labor culture dichotomy. Yeah. And I'm from North Dakota and I feel like the similar sort of thing there, the only people I knew, uh, that had uh, were in unions was like the train uh, engineers, like those sorts of folks. Um, yeah. But very, but I, I worked at a coffee shop in Fargo, and 
that thought of unionizing, like it, it, even like at a point where I was becoming politically aware and pro-union, um, uh, theoretically, I never like thought to apply it to my situation uh, there at all. And uh, so I'm just curious, like, you know, just to comment on the the sort of like, like, because they cite the uh, National Labor Relations Act when they do that strike, like that that implies some sort of awareness of you know uh, labor rights there. So what's like the labor culture situation? Yeah, that's a really interesting question and definitely one of the reasons I got into this story. So, I mean, in terms of the labor rights stuff, I mean, the Starbucks union's an affiliate of the SEIU, you know, one of the biggest, mm-hmm. the largest service worker union in the country. So, um, I mean, you know, they're lawyers in Oregon doing um, and inform the workers of their rights. But, you know, Denver's really interesting. Um, you know, it's it's a... And it's a democratic city in a state that's trended blue from purple or red over the past 20 or 30 years. Um, but you know, the labor culture is, it can be kind of sparse sometimes. And the, the rate of unionized workers in Colorado is below that of the national average. Um, it's a modified right to work state. So it's not a full right to work mm-hmm. law. Um, but it's like a half right to work law. Um, so if it's a unionized shop and you're an employee, you do not have to join the union or pay dues, even if the union is bargaining on your behalf, um, or advocating for benefits on your behalf. Um, and you know, this is, this is that thing about Colorado is that, um, you know, like you're saying, so, you know, that, that there are a couple exceptions, right? So, um, there is a service worker union, the UFCW, um, that represents like tens of thousands of uh, Kroger and like King Supers mm-hmm. uh, supermarket employees. And they did a big walkout over the winter. It was a huge strike. It was like 8,000 employees. Um, but they go all the way back to the 1870s and something called the amalgamated meat cutters. So unless it's a union from like way back in the day, um, the, the, they're the big, industries in in Colorado's front range tend not to be unionized. And this goes back to kind of the way the economy developed in this region since World War II. Um, A lot of the mines shut down. uh, The gold deposits had been tapped out and there was a big silver crash in the 20s and 30s. So a lot of the mines had closed. World War II happens and there's just, you know, like the rest of the Sun Belt, there's this huge influx of investment into the federal highway system. Um, military infrastructure is giant on the front range. Um, and, you know, this kind of very deregulated pro-business culture develops, which is still very much kind of Denver's core economy today. And this gets tied in with what I talked to one of the UFCW directors um, from the serv- from the uh, grocery store union. You know, he said this is related to Denver's idea of itself as a cowboy town. You know, it's Mm. got this big rodeo every winter and the Christmas lights don't come down until the rodeo in January. Um, And that kind of like Western mythology, you know, rugged frontiersmen, all that stuff that, you know, is completely disconnected from the realities of of settlement of the West. Um, People, you know, whether consciously or not it it is kind of the air people breathe in, mm. in 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 denver a lot of the time and that is used by employee you know i talked to a labor historian who said this trope is pretty common in western employers who kind of use this to um subtly or not so subtly getting in the way of of labor organizing and then and in, in the subtle sense that you know like unions are cultural things like if you know someone in a union if your parents were 
and union, you're probably going to be more to labor organizing. And if labor culture is really weak, you know, it's kind of hard to, you don't even kind of think about, you know, I talked to one of the baristas who grew up in a suburb of Denver called Golden. Um, she was a teacher and got a job at Starbucks to elementary school teacher to supplement that income. And she, uh, had been a barista at Starbucks for six years. And so before the union thing, and she said, it kind of never even crossed my mind. Like I met any union folks in my life. And so it was this like huge mental transition for her to be like, do I sign a union card or not? And at first she was like, no, like, I don't want to be fired. I don't want to lose my benefits. Um, and she eventually came around, but I do think that her experience was somewhat emblematic of the Colorado front range at large, where it's just that like, it's not even negative towards unions. It's just like an absence of them um, makes it that much harder to get people who, who when labor just isn't part of their day to day to say like, I'm going to put my name on a union card, send a letter to the bosses, put my name out there, risk being fired and stand with my coworkers. Like that was a mental transition for her. And, and um, I think she was not the only one, um, in, in that workplace who kind of had to go through some version of that. Well, I mean, I, I'd just be, um, you know, curious to hear you expand on this a little bit more too, because, um, you know, while there is that disconnect, um, and, you know, there's differences in different states with, with their history. I mean, there is a history there in Colorado, you know, yeah. like the Ludlow uh, massacre, uh, that happened there. And, um, I, I mean, I want to hear about Colorado, but it just it reminds me like a lot of some of the stories you read about in Texas history. Well, you don't read about them in high school or anything like that. Um, but yeah. if you're somebody like me who likes, you know, you know, read different history books, you're like, wow, there was a very, very radical and, organized group of people um in, in different times from you know things like what you would expect well gas but also cowboys getting together the fence cutting wars and like there is this kind of radical history there that is just like not really a part of most people's awareness even people who have like deep roots um mm -hmm. in these states and might even be related <laughs> you know to some of some of these people um uh, anyways but I'd, I'd be curious to, to hear you explain a little bit more on like the you know the ludlow massacre and and yeah. and some of that that kind of uh you know forgotten history as well yeah so the the ludlow massacre was um a uh incident 1913 in the southern colorado coal fields when um there was this general strike um in in coal um targeting the uh the coal company owned by uh, the Rockefeller family. Mm. Um, and uh, they kind of, pri you know, they hired the Pinkertons and kind of famous union busting private armies. And um, there was an encampment of the miners and their families in this town called Ludlow. Um, and there one day, you know, the, the um, guards employed by the mining company, you know, um, advanced on the camp and opened fire and ended up Jesus. killing over 20 people, including, you know, like almost, I think it was like 10 children, um, of the, of the miners. Um, and this sets off this, it's part of like this, I think it was almost a two year they, on and off. They call it the coal fields war. Um, mm. but it, it sets off like pretty literal war. Um, this 10 day battle where, you know, these miners who, tended to go on strike about once a decade in Colorado and was usually pretty violent. Like they were veterans of the mine wars. Mm. They, they start this guerrilla campaign. They destroy company towns and mining infrastructure. They fought with the state national guard. Um, I think there ended up being more people killed in what followed the Ludlow massacre than actually the Ludlow massacre itself. Um, and it only ends when, uh, 
federal troops from Leavenworth, Kansas are on the train to Colorado and the mine, mine, like, so the mining unions don't have any control anymore. Like the UMWA was telling them to stop. The miners are just doing their own thing. Um, and when federal troops are coming in, they kind of do like one more wave of destruction and then go home. Um, and it's this huge, you know, the consequences are kind of all over the place. Like, the Rockefellers de- debut company unions after this, like, mm. you know, which are now illegal, but, um, you know, that, that they're trying that, to bring that, them back though. They're yeah. trying to bring it back. Yeah. Um, but this was one of the results of Ludlow. Um, Congress does an in- big investigation into Ludlow with uncovering all these abuses. Um, but then there's also a kind of anti-labor backlash. The next election, they had elect a kind of pro-business governor who was supported by businesses who kind of thought Colorado's reputation had been tarnished. Um, and they set up this like labor commission where there are labor representatives seated on the commission, but it you know, is ultimately controlled by the state and mm-hmm. you know, the co- companies are well represented and it kind of ultimately becomes a way to curb union action, especially the more militant varieties. Um and, you know, the, the, the Colorado unions were really strong, really well organized in the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, um, and just, yeah, re- willing to, like, really throw down with the companies. Um, that kind, there are kind of a few more spurts of that in the 20s, um, but the state basically, like, deindustrializes in the 20s mm. and 30s, um, in part because of just like the availability of some of the minerals and in part because of market stuff. Um, and in part in some ways because of react, you know, the, the labor unions were stomped on a little bit. Um, and that leads to that economic transition that I mentioned after world war two, um, that it becomes this kind of like, you know, representative sunbelt hub for business and, you know, military investment um and the the radical labor history kind of gets left behind um but this one historian i talked to he's a professor at bucknell um who wrote a book about rocky mountain labor history said that you know one of the interesting things is that the 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 strike that led to ludlow the workers were striking for labor laws that were already on the books like mm. no script eight day uh eight hour work day um you know basic workplace protections and you know, a lot of the stuff that the Starbucks employees have felt like that they've been retaliated against for um, are also things that are, you know, labor action that are supposed to be protected. You know, in both cases, the companies know that if they get the risk. Yeah, no, I, I just, you know, a suggestion for p- folks, if you haven't read um, Mike Davis's Prisoners of the American Dream, he has an argument in there that I just think is really strong, um, where a lot of people say, oh, well, why has there not been like a strong labor party in America? Or why is there a labor movement not like in uh, other countries? And like the reality is, it's not been a case of absence of it, but rather like whenever there were these big confrontations, they got crushed and like the state mm-hmm. gets involved and plays a massive role in trying to destroy um, not just the, in, you know, the immediate um, negotiating circumstances, but, you know, basically tries to destroy the unions. Um, and then gets lost to history is when, yes. you know, you're mentioning that radical history in Texas. You know, I was thinking about myself. I grew up in Oklahoma um, and I remember reading this book by, you know, you got, I'm sure you guys have heard of a uh, great indigenous scholar, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. Mm-hmm. And her dad was like, ended up being a kind of like racist white guy at the end of his life. But 
when he was younger was a member of the Wobblies. And she kind of writes this personal memoir about like how, like his own personal transition as a history of Oklahoma. Um, But I remember reading that book and there's this thing called the Green Corn Rebellion, which is Mm -hmm. this like socialist multiracial uprising against the federal government. And it's just like this, you know, between that and Ludlow and some of this other stuff, like you really do kind of have to stumble across it because you're not going to learn it. And, you know, your general school history class in elementary school. Um, and I just remember reading that and just like, yeah, this is a very different picture of Oklahoma than I had. And you kind of get a little fondness for it. And then it's also sad that that feels like completely disconnected from reality. But I mean, you know, it can, it can play a big role too in reminding folks that we're not alone and that there's a tradition to, to stand Definitely. on. Yeah. You know, if it's happened before, it can happen again. Exactly. Those examples are really important. Um, well, on this, before we, uh, we roll, um, you know, just going back to the, the Starbucks example, um, you know, cause we're not trying to pump people out, but like we have to remind folks of like these stakes are high. Um, and there's been a lot of focus on the success of, of these run-ins. I'm sorry, the success of these, uh, you know, um, these union drives, um, you know, but that's just the beginning of the battle. Right. And we're seeing, um, you know, in other places where they have one that Starbucks is trying to play hardball when it comes to negotiating contract. Definitely. I mean, you know, I think there's been a lot of excitement around the sort of people who support, you know, the, the labor unions that the, the Starbucks has kind of gone from zero to 60 so quickly. And it is inspiring. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the pace of this thing is, is really quite remarkable. Um, but, you know, there are thousands and thousands of Starbucks stores in the U.S. and we're at hundreds of stores with active campaigns, not even wins. We're at less than 100 wins. Um, so the, you know, you know, every union win is significant, but in some ways that's just a really important milestone on a long process because then you have to enter into collective bargaining. And, you know, I mean, the way Starbucks has treated the Buffalo store, there've been continued firings of organizers. Um, and also just that aspect you mentioned earlier of just being able to wait out people, um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, they can, they can stall and, you know, get to an impasse in, in, um, the labor negotiating process and kind of continue pulling all sorts of anti-union tactics in the meantime and just exhaust people and people leave and you know new people have to step in um you know i think the the collective bargaining process is just going to be really quite brutal with starbucks um and you know the 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 seiu like i said i mean they're the giant established union they have really good lawyers but um i think it's important to have some sense of where we're at in the process like it's definitely not um you know, these benefits that the workers are so excited about are not here. And in some ways of thinking about it, like they're not all that close. Like there's a Mm -hmm. lot of work ahead. Um, you know, there's already been potentially, you know, I've, I've seen stuff about the Amazon union win and Amazon is now challenging it and people are being fired. And, um, yeah, you know, just the fact that, uh, a workplace will vote to unionize does not mean that, um, you know, any sort of finish line has been reached. But I mean, it's, it's a starting point. And like, this is, you know, the advantages oh, we have here. Important. Oh no. I know. Yeah. I'm not saying that you're not saying, I mean, it's like, you know, it's, um, 
it's it's a starting point and and two like this is like for the listener people who are listening to this like starbucks relies on being thought of as a progressive corporation like that's their big thing they've that's they've they've made bank off of that um and i think you know making sure that like we're supporting them as they're coming in right the the early steps of unionization and then supporting them at the negotiating table as well is really really critical because that's the only way um, that, you know, we'll be able to overcome a very powerful corporation like that is just having constant eyes on the ground and actual support for people when they're, they're requesting in your community. Um, cause it's, it's a long fight. And yeah, they have every advantage and especially in the ability to wait these things out. Mm-hmm. Um, which just requires that, like, you know, we, we get excited and celebrate, but not get misty eyed, you know, where we're sort of sitting back, um, and, and yeah. thinking things are done before they are. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, the fact that there were zero Starbucks unionized as of November of yeah. 2021, like the, the excitement is certainly, and the, you know, the surprise and the, the, you know, just the kind of, yeah, you know, ple- pleasant, su- air of pleasant surprise about how well this has gone is definitely warranted, but um, you know, it's a, uh, it's it's a very important step in a very long process and it is in the company's interest to wait them out as long as possible. And they have the advantage in that sense mm-hmm. um, when it comes to bargaining. So yeah, that, I mean, that's the next thing to watch. So, so when this comes out, we'll hopefully have a sense of, of the tally. Um, so I won't put you in the position of having to make a, a bold prediction, but if you could give us a sense as to, you know, maybe what the feeling is going into, you know, the tallying of the vote, that'd be, that'd be really great. Yeah. No, I mean, it's always a little nerve wracking to run a story <laughs> before you know the results, but you know, you want people to read it. Um, I, uh, you know, I have been asking all along and, you know, trying to interview people who weren't just unions, like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uncomplicated union supporters from day one, you know, as many employees as I could, um, you know, I don't, I didn't get to all of them. Um, but you know, over and over and over people were just, even when there were workers leaving and people getting fired, um, everyone just remained very confident that they had a pretty significant majority um, and, you know, towards the end of the process, when people were talking about how exhausted they were and how, you know, the workplace had become really unpleasant, I said, you know, is this going to impact things? And he said, you know, the, the couple people said, you know, the sense we get is that these demoralizing tactics, I mean, they've definitely made us unhappy. Like work kind of sucks more than it used to now, but they're aware that it's the company doing it to mm. them, not their fellow employees, even if, you know, you have a shitty shift and, you get annoyed at, you know, the other baristas that, that the conditions that they're working in are kind of being inflicted on them from above for the union thing. So, um, the sense that I got from, you know, multiple people was that, um, these tactics were probably making it only more likely Hmm. that they will vote to unionize. So, um, we'll see what happens, but that's, that's what my reporting so far has indicated. And, um, yeah, if I'm wrong, we'll have to, do another story on what happened. <laughs> well, uh, Nick, it's always a pleasure having you on uh, Left Reckoning. People can read Nick at High Country News. The piece is in The Guardian, Pure Propaganda Inside Starbucks Anti-Union Tactics. Highly suggest people read it, one for this breakdown and two for the, the labor history that, that we get there. Uh, you can find ways to follow Nick um, also in the show notes below. Thanks so much, brother. Thank you. This was fun. 
Yes, folks. Good, you know. Um, yeah. I don't know by the way, Dave. Am I sounding okay? You're a little mumbled. Okay, well, I'll go back to normal. You sound better now. I don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. No, you got to go back. Sorry, Matt. Damn it. <laughs> it really is, though, always such a treat to have to have Nick on. Um, his 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 reporting is always extremely thorough, and and he brings a great perspective. And I mean, you know, th- this story is, um, you know, one that is is really exciting to continue to cover, um, particularly because it's just like immediately useful. <laughs> um. In the sense that, you know, the kind of tactics they're using in Denver, the same they're using in Memphis and uh, Buffalo and Arizona, all across the country. So it's like very helpful to put that out there for folks. And, and it's amazing to see it catch on in real time, like to hear like that those workers were inspired by Buffalo. And, you know, that, that, that it's just like examples. That's that's mm-hmm. where people are getting inspired because they're realizing it is applicable to their situation. Yeah, no, I mean, totally. And like, this is, I mean, you know, we talked a little bit about the, you know, the difficulties of the second step, which is winning contracts uh, with Starbucks. And they've shown every inclination that they're going to try to fight the shit tooth tooth and nail. Um, But continuing to, you know, rack up these victories, especially unanimous ones like this, um, is is just so crucial and so important. And uh, hell yeah, I mean, congratulations to the folks in Denver. I mean, they face an uphill battle and they won. And uh, the calling out uh, or the the going on strike, I think, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, just that that stuff is I, it's not emphasized enough how much shit people have had to go through. I mean, we, we hinted at it a little bit talking about the Great Recession and all that stuff. But like, I mean, it's always sucked. But, you know, the pandemic put a whole lot of stress on folks, especially this like the fucking mass stuff where mm-hmm. you had these fucking tense interactions that you have to enforce. Uh, and yeah, um, like, I, I mean, somebody lo- like getting a tooth chipped by uh, somebody over that stuff. Um, I mean, really, it really upsets me. Absolutely, um, so. man. Well, um, we got a couple more stories we're going to get to. But just a reminder, if you all want more, we're going to be talking Bitcoin in the post game, the kind of fallout um, from the price drop there. And you can join us in the post game at patreon.com slash left reckoning immediately after uh, this live show, leave us a voicemail at one nine four zero two eight nine seven two three four. We always love hearing from y'all, and it's always really nice when we have a inbox uh, full of of y'all's messages. So uh, give us a call. Yeah, very much so. Uh, yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about we. You know, we touched on the Roe versus Wade overturning decision leak a little bit last week, and uh, sort of the some of the ramifications of it. I did not know this about my sister state, Montana. But mm-hmm. they have a similar situation with regards to the right to privacy protecting women's right to an abortion. There was a case in 1995 where they found that. Now, it's interesting how this is, this happens because that's the right to privacy is the same basis that Roe was decided. Uh, the people who uh, brought this case initially tried on the grounds of you're doing this to you know stop this service. And the Supreme Court's like, nope, you, we, you didn't show that, prove that, even though explicitly that's what these um, anti-choice uh, folks are doing. That wasn't good enough for the court, so they went back on this right to privacy and got that enshrined into uh, the state constitution. Uh, so uh, that's what's going on here with uh, this Montana abortion rights governed by the state law, not SCOTUS. Now, I just want to zoom in on what one of this uh, pro-life guy is saying here. Um his name is uh, Leslovsky for a Montana, uh, you know, 
um, Montana Family Foundation. So after the draft leak, anti-abortion advocates in Montana became cautiously optimistic, said Jeff Leslowski, which I think goes to the point where I think this leak was clearly like, uh, get the troops ready uh, for the coming assault instead of like uh, warn people to, uh, which is what we still need to do in response to it uh, uh, for the coming assault. But uh, And all of the stuff where Republicans are acting outraged is just acting. Um, if the draft becomes a final court opinion, the fight for illegal abortion would pivot uh, back to the state level. Lazlovsky said this is due to 1999 Supreme Court decision in Armstrong v. State, which said the right to privacy in Montana Constitution gave women the right to decide whether to have an abortion without excessive interference by the government. This allowed women to have an abortion prior to fetal viability. Uh, mm-hmm. Since the decision was handed down, any new restrictions on abortion passed by the Montana State Legislature are tested against the Armstrong ruling. Um, Armstrong, Laszlowski said, put us in a box. For Laszlowski, the two paths to make abortion illegal in Montana are either to amend the state constitution to no longer protect abortion or replace the entire Montana Supreme Court and get it to nullify Armstrong. Now, I think this is just a useful story for a couple of reasons. One on your basic, like arguing with family members type of thing where it's like, you know, with the sanctity of the constitution, this, that, and the other, right? If they believe, like just... I mean, first of all, the Supreme Court of the United States is example enough to how willing they are to fudge things. Um, but this is a very clear example. Like, either we get the power to amend the Constitution or we'll impeach these motherfuckers out of here and get in some guys that are going to do the bidding. Now, I will just say for the record, I approve of both of those things for uh, in service of ends that are mm-hmm. hideous and, you know, anti-women, right? If this was to, like, uh, do, like... No, um, we, the, the state doesn't do any business with a company unless it's uh, unionized. Uh, mm-hmm. that I would support ejecting Supreme Court or, you know, enshrining the Constitution. I think that all that stuff's great. But it, you need to point out, like, how their willingness to go fucking get it. And, mm-hmm. I mean, that is, like, outside of the ideological thing, just looking at this stuff, like, the Democrats, it's very clear that there is a uh, paralysis somewhere mm-hmm. in the action department and it's exactly like the, the civil war like george mcclellan uh, fucking leading the troops right it's like what are we exa- what are what's this army for and uh and i i, I that yeah, i wanted to bring that to folks attention and uh, i mean there's multiple uh bills already working their way through montana's uh legislature uh, anti-abortion stuff regardless of this uh state ruling so you know the assault is still on and I mean, I, I just wanted to note, I mean, that's a good point um, to make about the Supreme Court in, in Montana, um, the, that like, you know, people need to stop letting the right get away with this framing, um, that they're the party of small government, um, that they're the party of respecting the rule of law, whatever it may be. Um, they understand that they want to stack the deck in their favor. And I mean, I, I think that it would be good if, if the left took that um, position as well as understand that these things are political and politicized. Um, and we should be fighting for the results that that we want. Um, and even beyond that, just like stop this fucking fantasy game uh, where you just sort of act like these people's principles aren't constantly shifting. Um, because the right has shown anything, at least in my lifetime, that it's willing to completely shift um, to whatever is most favorable to it at a certain time. I mean, like, you know, Liberals like make would make this point about um, I mean, during the uh, um, 
when when they were stealing the Supreme Court seat, uh, you know, people would be like, "Oh, look at this Republican saying something different thirty years ago, right?" Um, and it's like, "Oh, we got him. We got him in a trap in a trap of their own words." It's like, no, they're shifty because they want to win, um, and they 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 understand that these are games of fights about power. And stop playing this game that like, oh, the Republican Party one day used to be you know a party of morals and small government and the rule of law. That's absolute bullshit. They understand when the terrain's shifting, and they're going to shift their messaging and their arguments in that circumstance and yeah i mean from from the supreme court fights to greg abbott here in texas when it comes to covid and centralized power like stop accepting their bullshit framing on these things and what would that look like uh we had liz franzik of a true anon podcast on uh, tmbs i'm pretty sure back in the day to talk about this but just to remind folks she had this tweet from 2020 so breaking this is october 20th 2020 new jersey governor phil uh, murphy announces the reproductive freedom act legislation that will codify a row and repeal some restrictions on abortion uh, new jersey is the first state to announce legislation to protect and expand access to abortion in the wake of RBG's death. And Liz points out, good, but why stop there? If you're going to legislate, then legislate an actual positive right because Roe doesn't do that. Uh, mm-hmm. Roe only guarantees access to a market. It says the state will not intervene in your ability to obtain, slash, which is to say purchase, an abortion in the place. It does not guarantee that the state facilitates your ability to exercise your right. This is why Roe has been killed by a thousand cuts. And this is exactly mm-hmm. right. Like We tried this thing, the, the right to privacy thing. It needs to be a right to an abortion. Yeah. And we talked about this with Dominique Remy too, about all the other th- things that are involved in making this an actual right for folks. And it doesn't just stop at this right to privacy. It starts to making this an affirmative right that is materially delivered to people as a service. You know, and like, this is like an important point too, is that like when it comes to abortion for millions and millions and millions of working class and, and, and poor women, I mean, it has effectively been outlawed for them um, because either they don't get access to that healthcare through their insurance system or it's prohibitively priced for them. I'm sure I'm not alone in being in the experience of getting together with friends to pull together 50 bucks from a few different people so that one of your friends could get an abortion uh, because they couldn't afford the price up front. Right. And that's a, that is something that I think is felt and experienced by many, many people in this country. And it's lucky if you have a large friend network that can help you out in that situation or great nonprofits that are bravely standing up and trying to support people, um, you know, to get this thing. But yeah, like the right to a market is not the same thing, um, as, as the right to a basic medical procedure like that. Um, and yeah, the framing needs not just framing in the way that we argue about it, but the actual politics and policy around that needs to shift dramatically. Like yeah, we can't think, just go back is what I'm saying. Yes. At this point, like we can't just go back to the, the status quo because it wasn't good enough then. And if the whole thing's under threat now, it's time to get much bolder and braver and, and provide much more for people. Yeah, like that, that's the results, right? Like it would have been nice if that was the way to have preserved it. It was, it failed. That way failed, and and there's no going back. There and like there needs to develop uh, in this country a more consciousness that 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 sort of thing. Like we need to start fighting for positive rights. Yeah. Well, y'all. Um, before we go to the post game, we have one more story, and I'm sorry, it's uh, you know, it's 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 a sad one, um, but it's important to highlight this and to talk about this. Um. Recently, uh, in Janine, uh, Shireen Abu uh, um, Akla, um, who is a Palestinian-American uh, journalist for Al Jazeera Arabic and uh, Al Jazeera English, um, was shot in the head by Israeli forces. Um, she was uh, – the, the murders by you know, the Israeli military on, on unarmed civilians 
are, are tragic in and of themselves. But this one's extremely egregious um, because this is somebody who is very clearly um, wearing a press uniform, uh, helmet, shirt uh, that clearly identified them as press. Um, this is some. Th- this is not the first time that the IDF has killed journalists in Palestine. Unfortunately, that is a much more frequent occurrence uh, than it should be. Um, the United States has been absolutely silent. You go and you read most of the media here or watch most of the coverage. It's as if there's just flying bullets, as if they're just like bees or bugs, just like flying through the air. Where did the bullet come from? Right. Somebody got shot and there is never a perpetrator. There is never an active element that shot somebody. Um, and it's absolutely um, it's it's immoral and it's it's evil. And it shows something that is so cynical about the United States government right now that we say that if you're an American citizen, that we take deaths abroad seriously and we will investigate and we will put pressure on governments unless it seems if you are Palestinian American. Then your life doesn't matter. Then we will allow the Israeli government to do its own investigation, which I don't think I need to instruct people about. Um, the Israeli government has a very, very horrific uh, track record with covering this kind of shit up. Um, and again, none of this would happen if these territories weren't occupied in the first place. Um, we have this video here, and and we can. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts too, Matt. Um, but this is from Al Jazeera. Sorry, the audio quality is a little low here. Um, but this is one of the members of, of um, this is one of Shireen's co-journalists uh, responding live uh, to uh, to her shooting and, and, and murder by the IDF. Shireen Abu Akleh, who was, has been covering uh, the events unfolding in Jenin, specifically an Israeli raid to the city in the north of the occupied West Bank, which she was hit by a bullet to the head. She was transferred to the hospital. Our colleague and producer, Rania, has been in touch with the hospital before the announcement of the death. The medical team told her that she had a very, very slim chance. And unfortunately, we just got the news from the Palestinian health ministry announcing her death. As you can imagine, this is... It gave us a shock to the journalists who are uh, who have been working with her. She's a very well respected journalist. She's been covering the Palestinian story for years and years now. Since the um, she has joined the Al Jazeera since the beginning of the second Intifada. She's been covering on the news. And we are now very shocked, very sad that this is the reality of Palestinian journalists covering the news. That unfortunately, they find themselves part of the story. Nida, and I understand, of course, that this is a. Forgive me for interrupting you, Nida, but I do, of course, understand. We all do understand that this is a very difficult moment for you and the team there. Are you able to tell us any more about the circumstances under which this happened? To be honest, Rob, I've seen a few videos. I couldn't continue watching them. As you can imagine, this is difficult. I've seen her shot in the head. That's all I've seen. I don't know the circumstances. I'm not sure where she was standing at the time. We're trying to uh, leave Virginia now to try and cover some there. But unfortunately, what we know at the moment is very difficult. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, 
it's hard. Um, this is just it, it, this is just a, a continuation of the the horror that everyday Palestinians face, and it's just the impunity um, with which this this system is allowed to continue. The silence of the United States. Um, when it comes to, again, somebody who has American citizenship, the United States should care on a moral level, you know, regardless of your citizenship status. But it just shows the deep level of the hypocrisy um, here and the willingness of this system to just stand up for occupation, dehumanization and a constant state of, of war uh, against Palestinian people. Um, many people I know Jeremy Corbyn's come out and spoken out about this, I believe, Tlaib as well. Uh, Ilhan Omar uh, shared this today. She was killed by the, in the response to the Associated Press, um, which, by the way, like, let's talk for real about this. You know, media criticism is important, um, especially on moments like this. The Associated Press had their building, right, where they had their offices in Palestine um, bombed, bombed by the IDF. Right. At this point, it's like to try to, you know, as as the journalist said, there's like too often, you know, Palestinian journalists have to become a part of the story. Right. Because of the brutality of the occupation, because of the dehumanization of people. Um, And the AP is another organization that has faced this kind of damage um, from from Israel, which has shown that it it is willing and it knows that it's going to be able to get away with this at this point, Um, you know, to to treat and put journalists lives in danger uh, like this. Um, so it just has to be known that, you know, when you read these, uh, you know, statements from the Associated Press, um, you know, this always the, the agent is always out of the picture. Right. Um, Shireen was killed by gunfire in the occupied West Bank. Again, as if that's just like a naturally occurring phenomenon, not somebody pulling the trigger, somebody yeah, the, in a the, uniform, somebody with orders. The New York Times headline was Shireen uh, trailblazing Palestinian journalist dies at 51. Mm hmm. Yeah. Oh, Lord. That, I mean, that's the worst. Jesus Christ. And, you know, Jen, Jen Psaki, um, similar kind of thing. It's a big mystery as to how these people are being killed. Um, but Ilhan Omar said uh, she was killed by Israeli military after making her presence as a journalist clearly known. We provide Israel with $3.8 billion in military aid annually with no restrictions. What will it take for accountability for these human rights violations? This is happening as Israel raised the homes of 40 Palestinians yesterday, leaving them homeless. And as they plan to evict 1,000 from the West Bank, the largest mass expulsion since 1967, again, I ask, what will it take for real accountability? Um, and those are very, very <laughs> uh, fair questions to be asked. Um, it's, it's, it's a complete joke uh, that, that we're, you know, continue to be in this situation. Um, it's, it's tough. Sorry, I get, it makes me sad. Um, but <laughs> if there's any silver lining, it's just, the people of Palestine just can't be broken. And, uh, you know, we just have to find ways to continue to support. And particularly if you're in the United States to work to end the funding for this apartheid system, this murder system uh, that has brought so much death, destruction and joylessness to people. Yeah. I mean, it's very instructive uh, case, unfortunately, like the, um, the habit of committing atrocities and the lying about it right now, the IDF and, even Pelosi is collaborating a little bit when she says we need an investigation and doesn't call any party by name, right? Yeah. And the IDF saying, well, we think it might be some Palestinians and stuff like that. It's like, well, it's not. I think very clearly she was sniped by uh, Israelis. Uh, um, but let's just say, like, like she, the the journalist is like, I don't know the circumstances. Well, we can, I can tell the circumstances in a way that journalists can't uh, and have those jobs. So the circumstances is there's a violent apartheid state murdering people. 
that yeah. that's the circumstances. And like Ilhan Omar said, evicting people from their homes. So let's just say hypothetically that there's a bullet flying from Palestine, which I believe this is a lie, to be clear. The larger uh, context is still this apartheid state setting the context for this. this is, it's just like it's just like like how a lot of people have become really good at spotting like Russians when they commit atrocities and their invasion and lie about it. Right. People are very mm-hmm. quick to call that stuff out. Um, this is the exact same thing. Uh, this is the exact same thing. Totally. Um, I, I just also want to, uh, you know, report too that um, one of the other journalists with him uh, was also shot, shot in the back, uh, but he seems to have survived. Um, you can find interviews uh, with him talking about what happened to them. I mean, it's very clear at this point. Um, and I just must say to, you know, people who in the United States who identify as liberal Zionists um, who are coming up. Uh, and and responding to this atrocity and saying, we need a full investigation before anybody can say something about this. Just know that you are making the exact same argument and you are acting in the exact same way as those nasty white supremacists who, whenever a black person is murdered by police departments across this country, says, we won't, we can't know the facts until the entire court um, process has played out. It's bullshit. It's racist. It's dehumanizing. Um, and you should be ashamed of yourself for playing that same kind of game um, as, as people who you might condemn in other circumstances. Right. It's absolute bullshit. Um, and I have no patience for it. And I don't think anybody else should, you know, should tolerate this anymore because it's clear as day uh, what is going on. Um, and it's it's just unbelievable um, to be sitting here in 2022 um, and watching American tax dollars go to support, you know, this this brutal system and then watching people try to run interference for something that is quite clearly in front of your face, a war crime. Yeah. And, you know, it's just like clockwork, too. Every yeah. spring there's more. It's can't. It's, it's can't. Yeah. All right, y'all. Well, um, we got fun stuff coming in the post game. Uh, I appreciate everybody hanging out with us. Nick was great. You can find his piece in the show notes below. Um, I highly suggest reading it. So plug for myself, read my piece in Sublation uh, magazine as well. You can find that show notes as well. Um, join us over at patreon.com slash left reckoning and uh, leave us a voicemail at one nine four zero two eight nine seven two three four. Um, we got a lot coming up in the next uh, hour or so. And then some really exciting shows uh, coming up in the next two weeks too, that we'll maybe uh, give people a preview of in the, uh, in the post game as well. But I will uh, see you all then.